We come to the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me there, we come to the very beginning of this letter that we had the introduction to last week. We're going to be studying it this fall together under the heading of A Christian Worldview. And I'll be explaining a little more today, building on what we learned last week. Galatians, Colossians. Only going to be reading the first two verses to you. We're not going to go through the whole letter this slow, I promise, but we have to start somewhere. And so we start at the beginning from Colossians chapter 1, where we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this word to our lives, continue to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, instruct us in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, especially that we might be able to understand who we are in Jesus. This is a great difficulty in our day, and so we pray that your people who know your name should stand out as being a wise and understanding, a confident and an and a rooted people, rooted in Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. One author who works in uh, national youth ministry uh, called Summit in Colorado said this, Every time I ask a youth pastor or a Christian leader what they think the biggest struggle teens are facing today, the answer is the same. Identity. Amongst Christians and non-Christians alike, everyone grasps for answers to questions like, who am I? What defines me? Do I matter? The leading edge of so-called Generation Z is turning 26 this year, and that generation is facing an unprecedented identity crisis. Even before covid Gen Z was the loneliest generation on record, even though it's the most digitally connected. And Gen Z is also the most prone to mental health issues more than any other generation today. I think those things are probably related. Some studies report that the more you compare yourself with others on social media, the more you're likely to suffer by comparison. And we know that everything on the Internet is true, so many people naturally feel that they don't fit in or they don't measure up. And that definitely comes into the church as well. We, we don't fit in. We don't measure up. Look how spiritual everyone else is online. Well, people are saying that being socially anxious is so common now, it's almost cool. Gen Z is the most accepting of all the identities, and so you'd assume that this environment would lead to... Um, a time when now identity crises don't exist anymore. But you can finally be whatever you want to be. However, instead of being the most secure and confident generation, so many report feeling, quote, rootless, aimless, insecure, and desperate to discover what they really are, who they really are, rather. And, of course, it's not just Gen Z. 
our whole society is feeling rootless and insecure. We all have our identities, of course, that are rooted in our callings, giftings, accomplishments, and failures. Some of us have put it all on our resume. Maybe it doesn't look as impressive as we like. In fact, one recruitment firm estimates that some 40% of resumes contain false information about age, experience, and education, other things. Why? Because we feel insecure. We don't measure up. And if our identity is based on our performance, then what happens when we fail? Modern identities are very fragile. Now, many of us have identities on social media. Perhaps even different sides of you are on different platforms. But is that the real you? It's not just online, of course. Sometimes we knowingly live duplicate lives. We act one way with one group of people, and we act quite differently with another group. We come to church. We put on a pleasant Christian exterior. But inside, we are bitter or confused troubled or worse? Who are we, really? People are looking to the next personality test to help them know who they are. There's a social contagion about sexuality and, and gender because people feel like they have to define themselves in some way. Uh, perhaps they think they're primarily defined by their desires. We have identity politics People identify with certain leaders and influencers. Even if you're not online, people resort to other means, exaggeration, self-promotion, tearing others down to make you feel better about themselves. Fear of not being enough leads to false or hypocritical living. So you see, social media has definitely exasperated our modern problem, but it, doesn't, it didn't create it. The problem is, the problem is in us. But what is the problem? Um, I, th I think the ultimate reason for today's identity crisis is that we're starting in the wrong place. In, in other words, we haven't forgotten who we are, but <coughs> we have, as a society, forgotten the God who made us. And that's what I'd like to explain to you today. In other words, being cut off from the one who does give our lives a rich confident, secure meaning and purpose without such a father in heaven to teach us who we are and how we are to relate to the world, we now are forced to do it ourselves. And that's the nature of the problem. We're starting in the wrong place. Without the ultimate source of life and truth, humanity naturally turns in and then flounders. The only objective standard of identity to tell us has just been torn away. Is it any wonder that people are increasingly questioning then who they are? Because I guess we have to decide for ourselves now. Well, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they were not expecting, uh, they were not experiencing an identity crisis so far as we know. But the truth was far worse than that. They had been given a false identity by their pagan culture. They were taught that everything was controlled by fate 
all the events that happened in their lives, the reason that you're a slave, the reason that you are being mistreated, is that the fates have determined that for your life. The gods were very distant and erratic and also very immoral. They certainly didn't demand right living, but you did have to appease them, and if you didn't appease them, things would not be well with you. Caesar was the son of the divine, being worshipped in Asia and Phrygia, where they were. Uh, Unless you wanted to provoke the gods, Caesar was also to be not only obeyed, but also worshipped. That's what they were told. All their lives, the people of the city of Colossae were fed these lives. Now, you might read the few introductory words to this letter and and think, well, nothing special. What else is he going to say? I tell you to the people who saw them, these words are revolutionary. They, They created a whole new identity, a whole new worldview. Paul addresses them according to a true identity, their new identity. And he does so in three relationships, which will be our outline today. First, there's our relationship to God, where he says that they and we are saints, set apart by God and for God as his holy people. Secondly, there's our relationship to one another. We are family. We are brothers and sisters of one father. He writes to the saints and faithful brothers as God's family. And thirdly, which he'll explain more later in the letter. There's our relationship to Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. Um, Just a few years ago, they had never heard anything like this before. And you have, I hope, heard this many times. But I would like to show you that this is just as powerful and just as relevant to you as it was for them. God's identity for you is so much greater than anything you could possibly make up for yourselves. Let's consider it from the passage. Just a few words today, but verse 2, to the saints, to the saints, he begins. That's how he begins addressing them. One of my seminary church professors was, uh, sorry, one of my seminary professors was speaking at a church conference, and um, Having some suspicion, he did a little test. He asked the church, now, I want you all to shout one word that describes you all. One word, ready, go. They said almost unanimously with one voice, sinners. This is a profound problem, as I'll show you. Let me begin by pointing out what you are, according to the word of God, Saints. Forty times in Paul's letter alone, you, you, sir, you, ma'am, are a saint. And the Bible says it many other ways, in other words. It says, Paul, uh, Steve quoted it earlier, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, writes Peter. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were not a people but now are the people of God. You know that uh, saints and holy ones, same word in the original, just uh, different English confusingly, but this means something about you. You are his special, set-apart people by God and for God, and it means something inside you. 
that having his Holy Spirit, that he is now teaching you how to live as his holy people. Uh, I realize, of course, the Roman Catholic Church sets apart some especially noteworthy Christians as saints. But uniformly, the Bible always refers to all believers as saints, God's holy ones. Now, the logic of the letter is this. Be what you are. It doesn't say be saints, or become saints, rather. It says be what you are. You are holy. Be holy. So, for example, a little later in the letter, chapter 3, verse 8. You yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge and according to the image of him who created him, where there's neither Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, the chosen of God, holy and beloved as saints, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called, and be thankful. Okay? These divine qualities of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, these are the things that are now to characterize us as saints. We have put on the new man, so get rid of those old things and put on the new. In the ancient world, uh, clothing was a kind of a sign of identity in many cases. You dressed to reveal your social class, your occupation, maybe your civil status. Paul is saying something revolutionary when he's saying that believers have put off the old man and have put on the new. He's saying that we have changed. We're no longer slaves to our sins. It's time to live as new creatures in Christ. So that's the general teaching of the meaning of saints. It doesn't tell you to become saints. It says you are saints. Be saints. Do you like R&B? Paul likes R&B. You are holy. Be holy. See? R&B? A few of you won't forget that. Okay. <laughs> when this truly becomes our identity, this is the point, when we embrace what has happened to us, and we know that we have been chosen, loved, set apart as God's holy people, His holy ones, well, then, you see, we begin to see our sins in a whole new light. This is not congruous with who I am. Whatever sins we commit are deeper and a more profound departure from God's calling than we ever realized. And when we have this cognitive dissonance, what am I doing? This is not who I am, not anymore. It leads us to repentance and renewal and growth. Okay, we mourn when our remaining sins that are fundamentally contrary to who we are and what God has made us to be come up again. So this tension between our identities and our actions, this is good, but it is lost if we call ourselves sinners. 
The Bible uniformly calls us saints. Saints. Uh, to be clear, of course, we know from the Bible there is no such thing as a Christian who does not sin. Paul says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, the people of God sinned. The Bible is so clear about that, but this is my point. Throughout the Bible, we are reminded that we have a new identity, that we are now living in and trying to fulfill day by day. The people of God sin. That is not my point. My point is that we are called saints. We're called many things, children of God, elect, beloved, and so forth. Most of all, saints. Conspicuously absent from the list is sinners. Only one possible exception I've come across in the Old, one in the Old and one in the New Testament, right? Paul says, chief of sinners, although he just said he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and ravaging the church of Jesus, And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So the one possible exception, he he points to his wicked, violent past. Because he was not exercising false humility. He was the worst guy. But he does say, sinners of whom I am chief. A possible exception, I'll leave it to you. Every other time, which is very often, we are identified as not sinners, but saints. And so, uh, some of you will know there's a controversy in a sister denomination whether people should be using the phrase then, gay Christian. Um, Well, I think no way. We are no longer defined by our remaining sins or desires. We have them, certainly. But just like we are not identified as thieving Christians or adulterer Christians or any other relic of our past, of who we were. Such were some of you, Paul wrote, but you were washed, sanctified, same word, holy, holified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have put off the old man. That was you, a sinner. The, this, that self died with Jesus Christ. Good riddance. And now those remaining desires in your life are sad relics and reminders of what you once were. But now your deepest identity, holy, consecrated, set apart, is that you are a saint of God. So can we still call ourselves sinners? Let me be clear. uh, We can still use the word. We are sinners saved by grace. I hear people say, fine. However, it's clear that we should be very clean to think, very clear to think of ourselves as saints, as saints as St. Quentin, yeah, St. Tim, St. Christina. Your sins, chapter 2, verse 14, have been nailed to the cross of Jesus. They're gone. You know, when they crucified somebody, they would write the crimes that he was guilty of and they would tack them above the head of the crucified man. This is why this man is dying. Colossians 2 says, your sins have been tacked to his cross. Your crimes, past, present, and future, he has taken away. And he has clothed you with his own righteousness. Or as the old Heidelberg put it years ago, 
that without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned or been a sinner and as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. That is your identity. And in the Bible, it says, let your new identity motivate you to, pres- to, to prefer and to pursue holiness. You are saints. Be saints. Are and be. You got it. Having considered who we are before God as his saints, we consider the second thing that he uses to address them, the second part of our identity as faithful brethren. Faithful brethren. We are family. Brothers and sisters, faithful brethren. That's who you are by grace. All children, of course, under one father, as we read in verse 2. Grace and peace from God, our father. Not just there, same in verse 3, same in verse 12, same in verse 19, and in chapter 2, and in chapter 3. It's a very strong emphasis. And once again, you see, in that, in that day, who was the son of the divine? Only Caesar. The king was the son of the divine. And now you are told, beloved brethren, you are true children of the king of kings. When one of my professors taught this at a church conference, same professor, he said, now I want you to shake the hand of the person next to you, look him or her in the eye and say with all seriousness, hello, your majesty. Be hard to do that with a straight face from some of you, I know. Hello, your majesty. Because that's who you are. That is how you are to treat one another. That's what something of the shock that would come to them as they are told, Caesar, son of the divine, oh no. You all, by faith in Christ Jesus, are truly the sons of God. When you're born anew, born of God, you're brought into a new relationship of God as your heavenly father with all your new brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Somebody may be from the other side of the world, but there is an instant bond that makes that person closer to you than your own flesh and blood family members who don't know the Lord. So this is an incredibly practical thing for the church because in the world, these peoples, some of them were enemies for generations. That was practically their identity with each other. And now in the church, chapter 3, verse 11, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. They used to look down on each other. They used to despise each other. They used to fight with each other and kill each other. But you see what he's saying. These people here now at the same table with you, these are your family members. Are you living that way? Because that's the point later on. Now, in the world, a lot of people feel like they don't fit in, right? They're different. They don't measure up. And people bring those very same feelings into the church. I, I just don't fit in here. I, everyone's different from me. I'm just, I, I'm just not like them. This is not a social club. This is a family. You belong. We love you. And like real family, family members, you can't be rid of us. When you focus on yourself 
and you focus on your interests and your station of life, well, of course you feel different. But that is not your fundamental identity, not anymore. What we have in common in Christ is far, far more important than anything else you could possibly name. Everything else is going away. This lasts forever. We're family. I got my sisters with me, said a great theologian. Many people feel insecure, and those who I find uh, hide it best often feel it most, very interestingly. But insecurity is for you now. Your insecurity is for you an invitation to escape those false beliefs that formerly defined you about who you are and where to find true love and peace and security. That insecurity is an invitation from God himself to remember and rejoice in what you truly have, love, peace, security, in him and in all those whom he's given to you, you see. Paul writes elsewhere, you are no longer slaves but sons in Christ Jesus. A slave has a very different mindset from a son. A son is dearly loved by his father. You don't cast off a son the moment he doesn't please you. Are you living like a slave of God or a son of God? I I read one person who wrote that during my freshman year of college, I had a friend who informed me that he was adopted during his elementary years. It was a great experience overall, and he and his family shared a deep love for one another. But during our second semester, his adopted dad passed away. And you could see the tears building up in his eyes as he spoke about his father's sudden massive heart attack. So my friend attended his dad's funeral and then returned to college a week later. As he returned, we sat and talked about our faith and about his dad's death. And we began talking about the shock he felt to be listed as a son in the obituary. Even more, he began to tell me how his dad left him money and a trust for the future. He was shocked to learn that he received exactly the same amount as his two brothers and sister. Being the only adopted child, he admitted that he assumed that he would receive less. He kept saying repeatedly, I didn't realize that my dad loved me like he loved them. He says, I was struck by his words. As soon as he, he spoke to his mother about his feelings, he admitted that he would never have imagined that His dad considered him as a true son. To which his mom replied, Son, on the day you were adopted, everything changed. Everything has changed. And brothers and sisters, everything has changed for you. These are the elements of your new identity. Brother, sister. The church has some crazy uncles, wayward sons. But it is now and forevermore our family under one great and loving Heavenly Father. And we are here because God Himself has made us His own dear children. Faithful children. Saints the fundamental building blocks of your identity. All right, we've considered our identity as saints, being faithful brethren. 
Thirdly, our relationship to Jesus Christ. As he puts it here, uh, in Christ. Um, Brethren, in Christ. That also might not look by much, like much, but I tell you, those are the two most beautiful words ever spoken practically, indeed. Because we are in Christ, we are saints, point one. Because we're in Christ, we are family, point two. This is the controlling factor for all these things and much more. The common Pauline description of our objective union and our subjective communion with Jesus is in Christ. You're in Christ. You've been connected to him, united in him, so that his life has become your life. His righteousness is accounted as your righteousness. His victory is your triumph. His reign is your destiny. This will be massively important and practical later on in the book. I can only give you a brief introduction today. Verse 13, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Jesus, verse 21, we're reconciled to God. Verse 22, above reproach. Uh, Chapter 2, clothed in righteousness, made complete in him. We received Christ when we became Christians. And now, he says, chapter 2, verse 6, to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, as he'll teach us, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's got so much to show us. Chapter 2, 20, we died with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, we are raised to new life with Christ. Uh, I can just give you a smattering of the text, but you see how revolutionary it is. It is as if you were adopted into the royal family of Great Britain or something, right? And uh, there you are. You're an heir to the throne now. You have a new status. You have new responsibilities. You have new titles. You you have new possessions. You don't even know all that's yours. Uh, And and in such a short letter, Paul is just going to begin to unpack what it means that you are now in Jesus. But all of it is so practical. Chapter 3, if then you were raised with Christ, he rose from the dead, and if you were raised with him, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not things on the earth. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, you too will appear with him in glory. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Okay, our union with Christ is everywhere in this letter, and it changes everything. Every facet of our identity, every blessing, every joy we can know, every day we are to live, it is all in Christ. In our world, what I'm saying is, if we need an identity, we don't need more self-discovery. We need more Christ-discovery. Yeah? Um, Now, I noticed that on the radio, uh, not to complain, but there are countless modern Christian songs that talk about who God says we are and encourage us that we are loved. We are valuable. We are worthy in Christ, all of which is completely true. And I'm not trying to trash any songs, right? All true. And it's an interesting fact of our age that we need those songs again and again and again all day. And what they're saying is true, but I think the focus is wrong when I compare it to Colossians because still the focus is on us. You are loved. Who God says you are. You are valued. Well, that's true. 
But Paul starts in this letter where we must start, not with us, but with him, without which everything's meaningless. In other words, the song that says you are loved won't make a dent in your love-hungry heart until you know just who is loving you. That's where Paul starts. It says you're chosen. Wonderful. Chosen by whom? I mean, I was, I was chosen for jury duty tomorrow. Not the honor I was looking for. Chosen. Chosen by whom? It matters. Chosen for what? It matters. Why were we chosen? Not because of us. That's the important part. It says you are redeemed. The song is right. But those words mean nothing if we don't deeply comprehend what we have been redeemed from and what we have been redeemed for and the greatness of the Redeemer's heart. What I'm saying is that this letter, which gives us our identity, which gives uh, new Christians in Colossae, whom Paul has not even met, gives them a whole new identity in life in Colossae. This letter doesn't start with them. It starts with Jesus. You are redeemed, and let me therefore start with the Redeemer. You are chosen. Let me tell you the one who has chosen you and why. You are loved and valued. Let me tell you about the one whose love and value really matters. So what I'm saying is the letter points us to Christ where our eyes need to be. And of course, if we start with ourselves, if we put our eyes on ourselves, we're going to get anxious. Every one of us. We should start with he is rather than we are and I am. Wish there were more tunes that way. The most important part of our story, the most important part of our identity is who he is. We can't find within ourselves what can only be found. Let me say it, say it again. We cannot look within and find within ourselves what can only be found in the heart of Christ. But in that heart, we find all that we would need and more besides. Are you rootless, groundless, without hope, without God in the world? Uh, I'm not going to tell you about a voyage of self-discovery. I'm not going to tell you to look in. I'm going to tell you to look up. And I'm telling you that in him, you will find the most revolutionary, mind-blowing things that you could scarcely believe if he were there personally telling them to you. You do a quick web search on identity crisis. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll find it's not hard to fix. You were encouraged to look inward and explore. Go on a journey of self-discovery. Do things that make you happy. Ignore judgment. And in short, turn your focus more fully and entirely toward yourself. In fact, one survey reported that 91% of Americans agree with this statement. Now, you could barely get 91% of Americans to agree what day it is, right? But 91% of Americans agree with this statement. Quote, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. This is my thesis today. The reason we have an identity crisis is because Americans, 91% of them, believe that. You look in, you don't know who you are. You have no one to help you, no one to tell you. It's no wonder that we're getting more and more neurotic, 
if not actually narcissistic. Paul frees us from that. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The greatest thing about you is that you are in Christ. That is your new identity. You may be a man, you may be a woman. Elizabeth Elliot, missionary, expressed it this way. The fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian. But the fact that I am a Christian makes me a different kind of woman. Whether possessions, whether achievements or relationships, whether failures, whether miserable, shameful failures in the past or in the present, I tell you, turn your eyes upon Jesus, our rock now and forever. That is the way out of our identity crisis. So, in conclusion, saints, faithful brethren, beloved ones in Christ Jesus, You've heard these words so often that they're hard to take in. But this is the beginning of what it means to have a new identity. This is how Paul addresses these Christians whom he's not met. In Jesus, you will not lose your true self. You will become your true self in him. We know why we are here. We know how we are to relate to the world because of this. Do not accept the world's narrative of who you are or must be. Do not believe the lies of Satan, whose very name means accuser. It's what God says about you that cuts the mustard, that counts. Victory in Jesus. A new identity. George Whitfield, early on in his ministry, um, went and uh, preached uh, in the open air to the Bristol coal miners, um, really the wretched refuse of the population of that day, desperately poor, filthy, wretched, living underground 12 hours a day or, or more in hard labor. Very few lived to the age of 40. And when Whitfield preached to them, the tears ran down their cheeks and streaked their blackened faces white, These words were to them a revolution. And Charles Wesley wrote some hymns for these new Christians. One of them goes like this. Madness and misery you count our life beneath, and nothing great can see or glorious in our death. As born to suffer and to grieve, beneath your feet we lie, and utterly condemned we live, and unlamented die. So wretched, so obscure, the men whom you despise, so foolish, weak, and poor, above your scorn we rise. Our conscience in the Holy Ghost can witness better things, for he whose blood is all our boast has made us priests and kings. Riches unsearchable in Jesus' love we know, and pleasures from the well of life, our souls overflow. From Him the Spirit we receive of wisdom, grace, and power, and always sorrowful we live, rejoicing evermore. 
we with him walk in white. We in his image shine. Our robes are robes of light, our righteousness divine. Of all the groveling kings of earth, with pity we look down and claim in virtue of our birth a never-fading crown. That is the power of a new identity in Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for though we are not what we will be, we are not what we were. You have made us saints like the Holy One, Jesus. You have made us brethren and him our elder brother of one father. You have given us a new life and a new future in him. And we thank you that you have made us together, binding us together as brothers and sisters into one family in Jesus. Oh, our Father, we pray that we would have some sense of the great revolution of these words in our lives every day, that even on the very worst day of our life, that we would with pity look down on all the kings of earth who do not know you and claim in virtue of our birth once again a never-fading crown. Father, we pray for any of those here who are deeply struggling with matters of identity. It is a great and increasing struggle. We pray that you would give them grace to look up and to see the one who has loved them and given them the greatest of identities that could ever be imagined. Sons and daughters of the living God, we pray that you would minister to their needs. We pray for those today who who do not have Christ and have not hope, have not an identity in which they are able to ground themselves or their lives, finding themselves drifting day by day in this world and unknowing what, what will be their life and future tomorrow. We pray that something that I have said today would stir their hearts too. They would realize that there is a reason for their anxiety. And there is a reason to put their hope in Jesus as the one who is only able to make that true identity, to live and to shine forth forever. Oh, may it bring the joy of eternal life in him.